All right. Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Chana, and I am the owner of Knowledge Find LLC. But right now, you are listening to the Lessons We Learn podcast. This is a podcast for those who enjoy lifelong learning, who like to explore new topics, but who also have taken time to learn lessons in their life that they want to make sure they don't forget. And as we've been talking in this series, I had been exploring a few lessons, a few lessons, seven lessons specifically that I learned in the workplace. And this one is going to be on the topic of civil rights. Now, at one point in time, I had this idea of civil rights. And of course, the lessons that I learned in school, uh, when we talk about our K through 12 education, were really limited at least in the school system that I was in. Um, And if we're just talking about the learning that takes place at school, not at home, but in the school system that I was in, it was really just an emphasis on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He had a dream and it centered around Miss Rosa Parks who sat down on a bus and didn't get up, wouldn't give up her seat. And then you hear about marching and you hear about protests but civil rights and that issue has been so much more and there have been so many more contributions and people who have done great work but because of who they are and because of the kind of work that they do which is truthful work to expose the system that we have in the united states for what it is these are some of the very groups and parts of curriculum whether we're talking about primary texts um, or even secondary texts or personal accounts of what has happened in civil rights those things don't really get included in our school systems. But when I was in the workplace, this is very interesting because again, these, some of these connections go back to what I was researching when I was in graduate school, um, learning that there existed a journal of Negro education, knowing and learning that there existed those who looked like me, were my shade of brown, darker or lighter, uh, give or take a few shades, who actually spent time doing research, scientific research, mathematical research, taught in the classrooms. I really didn't see those images too much that looked like me, my K through 12 education. And it changed a little bit because one thing that was very interesting when I got to college, I hear of this account of Napoleon. And I actually had a professor who said he was stupid. (laughs) This is the first time that I had heard though, and my point in, in sharing this, this was about the first time that I heard anyone teach the conquerors, colonizers, the conquistadors, anyone who came and conquered a land and who took land from people and did so by destruction, did so by uh, force, that I had heard them spoken of in a negative context. Normally these things get explained away. They get um, excused. But specifically, I remember this lesson was about Napoleon and its relation and his relation in that army that move into Russia. And he just spoke about how this leader was supposed to be so great, but not really. And it was the first time I remember having that feeling of, whoa, wait a minute. Did you just speak down? And not that I personally felt that way. I was not offended because it didn't attack my identity. It actually gave me a little bit deeper understanding of the fact that we should be looking at multiple perspectives. We should not just be considering the conquerors, colonizers, the uh, conquistadores, those who 
literally came out of Europe, specifically speaking of those moves from their perspective. And we call that the Eurocentric perspective. Now, why I share that hearing this, I kind of brightened up and lightened up in a history class for the first time in my life was because I, again, I hadn't heard it taught from a perspective like that, but it also didn't attack my identity. It's not who I was all my life, you know, according to what we teach in the schools, again, according to what we teach in the schools, I have an understanding of who I am and my identity, spent time growing up in the church, even had a foundation in a Christian nursery school, preschool time, before I got into the school system where I began kindergarten and had a teacher who had blonde hair that we used to just play in and marvel at or in elementary school looking for those teachers who looked like me. And I remember hoping I could get the one African-American teacher that was at the school. And then by middle school, looking to have that one teacher, and I did have one for PE. And I wanted to have the one teacher for social studies, you know, because history and English and a lot of it for me, and I'd shared, I've shared this with, shared this before, a lot of it I struggled not so much with who I was, but the fact that I'm continuing to hear about someone else's perspective. And I had books at home. My mother made sure that we had books at home um, that she did share with me that told a different story than what we hear in the dominant culture that's represented in our school systems. So by high school, I'm still looking for that teacher. And I did have a teacher in typing class, had a counselor for one year who's also African-American and my biology teacher. And I appreciated those opportunities. Also, my physics teacher was also not just who would consider himself to be white. Um, and this, this brings me to then, again, when we get into that college, when we get into higher levels of education, some of these primary texts, they open up. But most people end up going through their K through 12 experience having a Eurocentric identity, a white supremacist and supremacy, um, depending on how they receive it in their family and what their family is teaching them, what lessons they're learning from their family, they are learning these lessons that confirm their identity. So when it came to the workplace and these experiences that I had, I ended up having a conversation. And it was very interesting because there were two power holders at that time. And I'm being very intentional and specific in saying this because when you are a director, when you are a leader, when you're a president, a trustee, when you're uh, sitting on council, when you're sitting in a marriage position, uh, even if you are sitting in a manager's position, you are in a leadership position that allows for you and affords for you to have power, a position of power. And so when we talk about power holders in an organization, whether it's a business that's for profit or the nonprofit business that goes on, what I remember is bringing up issues that were of concern to me, things that I saw that were going on in, in the place where I was, which should have been, when we think about it in theory, offering equitable, equal, whichever term would be most appropriate opportunities to have access to the public resources. But what I was finding is that really wasn't the case. And when we talk about civil rights and we talk about you're not allowed to discriminate, these become issues that leaders of organizations, again, for-profit, corporate, 
non-corporate, small groups, small community organizations really need to think about. Um, those are protections at the federal level, definitely for those who are receiving federal funding. But then when you talk about perceptions of identity and how people perceive diversity and diversity initiatives, that civil rights compliance can get a little sticky depending on who's the person that's in charge. When you look at the issues of compliance specifically, we'll start there. You have a minimal standard that you're looking that you are required to meet. It's not necessarily one of those that you go above and beyond. So you're not necessarily looking to go above and beyond a basic standard of does your board, do your employees, even does who you serve reflect who's in the community or who could be your employee, who could be the makeup of your staff, whether it's lighter or darker brown shades, do you have a diversity of, of uh, people who are participating in what you do and what you offer? And so one of the things that I learned, here's one lesson, is that when you're operating out of compliance, you're going to do the minimum. And when you do the minimum, you miss out on some very great opportunities. But when we talk about compliance legally even, there are standards that are in place that as long as people meet them, they can get away with navigating that minimum. And I did find that that was happening. Now, when it comes to compliance and bringing up issues like this, it absolutely depends on who you're talking to. It depends on their culture, their heritage, even their beliefs and their experiences, because two situations happen when it came to civil rights. One thing that I've noticed in workplaces is you can do a review with your staff to find out if you're being compliant. And particularly, again, if you're receiving any type of government funding, it's required. But when you're doing a civil rights review, I would recommend that you would look at not just are we meeting a basic set of numbers and even parity, but are we actually forming relationships and paying attention to people who would allow for us not just to avoid discrimination in lawsuits, but to actually bring forth that better community, that better opportunity for us to serve. And here's one of two things that happen. In a conversation, when we talk about power holders, those who are in positions of leadership, one thing that happened is I'm describing what I'm seeing and I'm bringing these up as issues, not complaints, but also asking questions. And sometimes when you ask the hard questions, people get stirred up. And what happened in that scenario was very interesting because I'm talking, we're in a breakout session. And as we're in this breakout session, it's small groups all around the room. No big deal. We're talking, sitting at the corner of a table. But because of what I brought up, brought up, excuse me, in that conversation, and because of the nature of what I brought up, I ended up getting a retaliation. Now, does that qualify or, you know, necessarily mean that I've been discriminated against? Eh, sticky. May not be able to classify it as that. But what happened was the person was so uncomfortable that then they proceeded to get up in front of the entire room of people and say that I cornered them. And I'm trying to figure out what? 
<laughs> I don't even think I was trying to figure out. I just had this like, did she just really do that? Did he just really do that? Did they just say that? See, these are the questions that can go through a person's mind when that behavior begins to manifest. See, because another example that I found out is when you're bringing up these issues around people who may not have had to do anything more than be minimally compliant is they feel like you're challenging them personally. So you have people in power positions whose culture, whose identity has been affirmed, confirmed, and everything else throughout their upbringing, their family, when they go to school. But then when you start bringing up these things as a matter of discriminatory practices or as a matter of excluding those who even the funds of the organization should be for also, not to the exclusion of those who are already and have already had access, you know, just like we know that it's been proven over and over and reported over and over, over and over and studies have shown that white women, as they are classified as white women, have been the primary ones who have benefited from affirmative action policies. But then there's this backlash that says when someone else starts to get the opportunity to participate from those kinds of efforts and policies, no, we need to get rid of them because it's discriminatory. So when you bring these things up in conversation, and I've done this before, what I learned is that their identity is so confirmed and affirmed and has been so prevalent that they feel like you're attacking them personally and will move into retaliation mode. Now, generally, it can happen in a way that it does not appear to be discrimination, but it's a subtle attack. It's actually subversive in its operation because when you put someone on public display, and when that happened to me, I literally... I saw it, I caught it, but it wasn't until later that I really understood that I'm having these conversations with people who consider themselves to be white, who consider themselves to not be ones who discriminate, but yet when you start asking some of those questions, which are not necessarily hard, but hard because they challenge the system that has supported them all of these decades, centuries even, that their personal identity is being attacked. That's, that's what I learned. I learned that that is that way. And so when we look at those who are in leadership positions, those who are power holders, those who hire, the ones who lead in small teams even, who are set to be the project managers, we all have a responsibility to make sure that we are, first of all, checking our own behavior and I know for me as a Christian, I have, there's a scripture that tells me, be careful what you hear and how you hear. And that's wisdom for everyone. Because had when I was in these workplace situations and asking these questions and also questioning the answers I was being given, if there had been a, are you listening to what is being said? And then checking yourself for your emotions or anything that might be getting stirred up even in your identity, am I listening from that place of personal or am I listening to just what's being said? Because even if I'm just listening to what's being said in that next moment, I have a decision to make. Is this something that is coming against me personal and is this a personal attack? Or is the person simply presenting information that could allow for me to move beyond that place of compliance 
which is really a sub standard. It's a lesser standard. You know, we talk in this nation and often very pridefully about how great the nation is, about how wonderful and about how America is like, you know, the police of the world, the pride of the world. Now, other nations, you may talk to folks from other nations and I have personally, and they have a different perspective. But even on the website, that is the citizen and immigration website for the U.S. federal government talks about like race is not a factor in how they decide that people come here. But I would say it absolutely is when we have census that continues to define and redefine categories of white so that there is a 72% and then the next highest number is 14%. I absolutely challenge and I'm asking this question for those of you who, who, who can help me on this one. How do we start to break up and truly define that 70% according to what is accurate? Because it was for all men are created equal, which we can put in all brackets. White men are created equal. All men from Europe who came over to these lands to start a new nation were created equal. We've already gotten to that point where that dialogue is out in the communities. It's out in the churches. It's out in um, the places of worship. That narrative, that way of framing things has been out in the educational realm for decades now, actually. But what are we doing about it? And that 70%, I challenge that because when you put in North African and Middle Eastern descent, those numbers are very manipulated. And if we want to truly deal with discrimination, first of all, I do absolutely believe that we need to start dealing with how we are defining that 70%. And again, I ask if someone can help me out, who is going to be responsible and who can be responsible for, for looking at that? So that 70%, which is now up to about 72%, because we have about 382 million people that are listed as being. Um, citizens of this nation, the United States of America, the other portion of what we do in this nation that I would challenge when we talk about opportunities to discriminate and how they're systemic and how they're institutionalized is when we define the 13th Amendment. The targeting that does happen, the discrimination that does happen, um, that would allow for that clause to be absolutely active and alive of, if you commit a crime, we can treat you as a slave. I often hear, and especially when I'm in the schools, the narrative is somehow like the history is 1863, we go to 1865, we may talk about the wars that have happened in between, and we jump from like 1863, 65, and Lincoln narrative, all the way up to like 1964. What about all the years in between in the schools when we talk about this? And part of this very foundation of how we structure education, how we have allowed for people to use and misuse and abuse the 13th Amendment. And of course, it was certainly intentional that it was done that way. Let's be very clear and even be clear, very clear about the present practice of corporate investment, um, financial investment in the prison systems where slavery is active and alive. And that's just one form of slavery that happens in this nation. But the other part 
that we really do need to consider is, are we going to change these practices? So we've got the definition of white in this country as of European descent, Middle Eastern, and North African. We need to change that. We also have the definition uh, that, that is on the federal government that says race is not a factor in how you get here. But as soon as you do, when you're counted, pick a category. And it's a racial category. It's not just the educational attainment or where you live or your age or your gender, male or female, but it's also very much so pick a race category, fit into a race category. And then that 13th Amendment, these are things that are in our institutions and a part of our legislation, the laws of this nation, and even the constitution of this nation that do allow for discrimination to continue to thrive and also continues to favor the ideas, the ideologies, the power and the power structure, the economic distribution, the educational attainment, and so on and so forth, access to resources that favor those who are called white. Interestingly enough that on that government website, the census very much has been updated at least to acknowledge that this is a social construct, but are we going to change it? Are we going to mature past these categories so that we do actually have some kind of injustice for all versus injustice for some? If you have enough money, if you fight to fit into the system, that really doesn't acknowledge but a set of cultural norms and values that favor a group who can identify with it. When I thought about civil rights and discrimination and how that conversation with went, um, and even at one point being in a situation where I was looking to advance and then I was hindered, I was hindered by leaders in an organization, hindered from moving forward. Now, of course, they didn't stop me. God did not allow that. But I was challenged to finish a degree and I worked for an educational institution. I did not understand that until it came down to, yet again, how people are raised and what their identity is, what they feel they should have because of what they've been taught all their lives. So to every teacher, every leader, every minister, every corporate CEO, CIO, and every C title um, that's out there, what will you do next in order to make sure that you move beyond compliance and that you're not the very ones in your system, whether it's your corporate system, your company system, right, your business, or whether it's your nonprofit organization system, or even if it's these publicly funded institutions called schools, out of school, after school time programs that are funded by state, local, and federal funds. What are you gonna do to move beyond just a simple compliance and to make sure that as you do your reviews, as you do your civil rights reviews, especially for those again who are government funded, are you going to do more than just go down your list, one, two, three, check, 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 and let's move on? Or are you going to take a look in the mirror and see, how do I treat people? Who do we have here? 
Are we missing anyone? Yes, absolutely. Parity is a good place to start. But again, with that 70% number, the way that it is rigged, that also becomes a compliance level that is below a standard that we could be doing better with. I want to share this quote from you. I have a uh, book before I finish this up here today. And this book actually is called, let me see if I can get it in here, Power and Privilege. Now, I, I picked this book up I, somewhere when I was in grad school. It may have been in my advisor's office and was getting rid of it. I'm not sure. But it's actually by another professor who at the time was at the University of North Carolina, professor of, professor of sociology, Lisinski. And this is Power and Privilege, A Theory of Social Stratification. And I've thumbed through the book a little bit, but when I came to this quote, it's actually just at the very beginning of, of the book, the first chapter, which is called The Problem, Who Gets What and Why? The, the following is, is what is said here. The system of stratification in any society is essentially an expression of the value system of that society. In a business, in a workplace, in a school, in a community group, in your neighborhood, what is the value that's represented in how things are structured? What is your value system? And then as you're looking at that outward value system, who are you in that system? What is your character and what are your beliefs, your values and norms? And do they reflect access? Do they reflect the opportunity for others to have access to the same resources do you, that you have access to? And I say that because I also spend time in the classrooms and I was in a classroom with five and six-year-olds. And this actually, um, I spent a lot of time in the last calendar year or so, mostly in elementary school classrooms. And I have these moments where, of course, I think about things a lot. But this was a moment where I'm watching children uh, essentially fighting over a bucket of the little building blocks, not the Lego little ones, but the next size up, the, the ones that they can handle with their hands. And I'm watching them fight over the resources. And I'm watching a couple of them saying, no, we have to share. And watching the one who says, no, these are mine. And I thought about how we behave as adults when we talk about public resources and access to resources and how we treat people who want to just be able to access the same resources as the privileged, the dominant culture, and those who believe that they are the ones who own anything that can restrict others from participating in those very systems and from being able to benefit from those resources. Literally watching these six-year-olds play with these blocks, I thought, wow, I don't know that we've learned this first grade lesson yet because the response at that age is that we teach children to share. And I'll leave you with this question. Will we as adults learn how to share? I thank you for listening today. I thank you for taking time out. I hope you and all that is going on will find a reason to smile, that you'll take time to love your neighbors, and that mostly we get to that place where 
we decide we want to do better because we can do better. Not just because we say that we're such a great nation, but because we as individuals take time to do better.